I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the London Review of Books podcast. In this week's episode, the film director Stephen Frears talks to the LRB's editor-at-large, Andrew O'Hagan, about working in Hollywood. Stephen Frears' movies include My Beautiful Laundrette, Dangerous Liaisons, High Fidelity and The Queen. He's also written once or twice for the LRB, and his diary from 1990 on how he came not to direct Donnie Brasco it was idiotic, he wrote later, to try to set up a film about the Mafia, halfway between Goodfellas and Godfather III, appears in a new anthology of pieces from the LRB archive. LRB Collections 10, Why Goldwyn Wore Jodpers, writing about Hollywood from the London Review of Books, was an introduction by Andrew O'Hagan, also includes contributions from Gabriella Annan, Betsy Blair, Angela Carter, Jenny Diskey, David Hare, Michael Rogan, David Thompson, B. Wilson and Michael Wood. Stephen Frears and Andrew O'Hagan began their conversation with reflections on the new Hollywood of the 1970s. I read a book called The Movie Brats that Linda Miles wrote. And I read about these young Americans and I just thought, blimey, I didn't know people. You know, you, I mean, of course you read about their swimming pools, but you just, these people were so imaginative and given such freedom. Now, I can remember lying on my children's bunk beds reading this book and thinking... What incredible lives these... I mean, I think Scorsese's younger than me. Well, they were certainly around my contemporaries or my generation. I just, I couldn't believe. And they were making The Godfather and Close Encounters, and I was so jealous. And Well, this leads us right into the book that we're here to discuss because David Hare's review of Linda Miles's book uh, appears in this book. And let of, me quote you from of the, of the movie, Bratz. Indeed. I think it's absolutely central to my life. Well, he says this in it, um, and I wanted to put it to you. I believe English directors so often foul up in Hollywood, not for artistic reasons, but because they have no inborn sense of how to deal with the, this particular kind of American who runs the movies. Do you agree? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't know if I would narrow it down to the people who ran the studios. Well, there's no reason not to reflect on it personally. I mean, you've had tons of experience with these people. Yeah. It's obviously not easy working with them. Or if there's a movement of British directors towards Hollywood, it has been hazardous very often, not particularly for you, but for many. Yeah. Is that just it's simply complete. money? I remember the first studio film. Really, the difference between studio films and independent films. And, of course, studio films are very, very expensive. And I remember walking onto the set and when you go behind the set, in Britain, they're all made on scaff with scaffolding. You know, the scaffolding is yeah. in America, it's wood. <laughs> and you just thought, blimey, how many trees were cut down to <laughs> support this? But it was like making a film in a circus. It was like nothing I'd ever come across. And I always think that's what I couldn't cope with. Whereas I'd made The Grifters, which was like making it in English film. And I was very lucky that my guide to America with the grifters, was Scorsese, who 
to all intents and purposes, was the same as me. Well, he's a huge sense of European film. Yes, absolutely. So I was in very, very safe hands. Well, explain that a little bit or, or, or expatiate. I mean, how did it happen that that was... Because it, it was an American movie. Yeah. You know, no, I used to how walk around happen? and say, is this American or European? <laughs> Nobody ever quite answered the question. And indeed, those films were largely made by European emigrants, weren't they? Film noir. Yes, indeed. But, I mean, they very quickly not only came under the cosh of the studio system, but they led the studio system. I mean, when you look at Wilder, or you look at... Well, they were very you know, successful. They were successful within a system of production, yes. Yes. which was incredibly demarcated and closely run mm. as an industry. Mm. So how was it that when you get to the grifters, you're able to actually survive that process? Because I was, it was, you know, I'd made liaison, so I was riding high. And... Um, I was protected by Scorsese. I think I was protected. And anyway, it was good stuff. What was it Scorsese initially responded to of yours, particularly Dangerous Liaisons? No, no, no. No, no, no. Scorsese somehow worked out, and I salute his... It's a particular... He worked out that the grifters should be directed by the man who made my beautiful laundrette, that it had the same hooligan qualities. He made that connection. I don't know. I mean, you know, he's a very clever fellow and was going to be a priest, all of that. That's why he came Always to me. Always a recommendation. <laughs> That's why he came to me. And I just thought, blimey. And he didn't know me. You know, he sat in New York seeing, seeing a film. And on the basis of that, came to see me, asked me to make The Grifters. Did he seem quite un-Hollywood to you in some sense? I mean, he's a bit of a, a one-off well, he was, no, he was a one-off. I remember going to his office on a Saturday afternoon and it was full of people and I, and I thought, oh, I see, you're all business people, you're all businessmen. You know, there were secretaries there and then there were these posters on the walls of the Victor Mature film noir, whose name I can't remember now. And there was archivists and the whole shooting match. But I knew his film, so it came as no surprise. I mean, in the end, he'd say to me, I said, why don't you make another little film? I should, or no, they all used to say, they, he'd say, well, I was going to make this little film, and then Leonardo DiCaprio said he wanted to be in it. Sidney Pollock used to say, I, I should make films like you, but I can get Tom Cruise. <laughs> <laughs> you knew that they could, they could, they were helpless before this giant sort of tank just riding through everything. Well, in a sense, that is the Hollywood that appears out yes. of the pages of this LRB book. Yes. Well, it's the it is, tank. It is a tank, and it's you couldn't stop it because it so dazzles, dazzles everyone. I'm glad I've seen it. <laughs> it was very, very entertaining. I mean, enormously entertaining. And it was, you know, you couldn't be more talented than Dustin. You know, it was full of these very, very brilliant and very beautiful people. You didn't think you'd lost anything. I mean, when you were I thought there, I'd be good at it. Because Liaison was such a big success. I can remember even Clint Eastwood saying, Congratulations. I mean, <laughs> you know, silent figure. I thought, oh, I see, I can take and liaison was so important in my development. I mean, I learned how to I I learned what American actors do. And I learned, oh, I see, this is how, this is actually how you do it. And I'm, you know, so far as I know, I got it right. And uh, I thought, oh, I can make these films. 
because I know how to get these actors to give good performances. And then I felt completely flat on my face. I made um, the film with Dustin, which was a flop. Hero here, accidental hero there. And then I made, um, I mean, a week before Hero opened, Mike Ovitz said, oh, this will take 100 million. People had just decided they didn't want to see Dustin anymore. God knows what that was all about. That was an interesting thing, that, because... There and they have... said they were tracking it. And before it opened, it was going down. So you have Dustin Hoffman, you have Gina Davis, you have, you know, this interesting human story mm. and an attractive scale that people just wouldn't take to it. They just... It was, it was dropping before it opened. You thought, well, people haven't even seen it yet. You do wonder if there's an inner machine to these things. It's beyond rational thinking. I don't think a machine. I think there's something in the wind. <laughs> I mean, that's what happened with with uh, Hero. But I say Mike Ovitz the week before it opened so it said 100 million. Oh, so this obviously is said by other people, not by Stephen, that, you know, there is a kind of preordained nature to success and, you know, the advertising, the budget, the way things are t conceived of in marketing terms is a pre-deciding about the film. I remember success. thinking, I was going to do the film with Dustin and I was in my hotel room and the phone rang and it was Harrison Ford. And he, was asked, he said, come and make this particular film. And it was a very good script about the Pullman strike. Yeah. The, the people who ran, you know, the, the railway were going, to, were going to strike. Anyway, it was really good. I said, look, I'm already making this film, this other film. He said, yeah, but ours is better than that. And I remember afterwards thinking, oh, I see, they just put two scripts on the table and say, one of these is going to be successful. You decide. When I made Hero, it was like making a film at a circus. And um, it seemed to me the material was very, very good, but it was very, very public. So, and everyone was sort of watching and talking about what you were doing. So the privacy that you'd more or less, you know, the indifference that people in Britain showed towards filmmaking... There was none of that. They were very, very interested in it all and had opinions. If you're a certain sort of European uh, film talent, either as an actor or as a director, you, you tend to ripen in Hollywood. You think of Billy Wilder or Peter Lorre or Kate Winslet, and then other people are constantly and innocent ab abroad, as Angela Carter in a story that's collected here. Her main character talks about being an innocent abroad in Hollywood. You are. You absolutely are. Say more. They're so, well, they're so wealthy and so used to paradise. I remember, um, you know, I made two films for $40 million budgets. And I remember Jim Brooks, who was a very clever man, saying, well, you should think of it as a privilege that you've got. This. I said was complete. And I remember actually a, a conversation with David Thompson in Berlin, a public conversation. He showed Mary Riley a film that caused me particularly the high level of pain and which he thinks is rather better than I think it is or than the world thinks it is. Anyway, I said, I'm only prepared to discuss it as failure. And um, he couldn't understand what I was talking about. I said, well, it was a complete failure. And indeed, failure seems to be more interesting than success. You know, how many films do you see a week? How many are good? Maybe one if you're lucky. The rest are failures. So failure seems to be what you should be talking about, but failure is never talked about. 
you've been consistent on this particular question. I came yeah. to see you at Pinewood when that film was being shot. Mary Riley. Mary Riley. And I remember distinctly you saying, when I asked you how things were going, you said simply, money drives people mad. I think so, yeah. yeah. Now, that's a crucial thing. If we're going to be talking to people about Hollywood, we need to bring them some goods on that. Why does it drive people mad? Well, it's not that. I remember when, when I would come back to England, you couldn't talk about it. You had, to all intents and purposes, seen paradise. You'd been, you know, you would drive around in an open-top car and it was an incredible life. And you, you know, you would see every now and then you'd run into these famous, beautiful people that David Thompson writes about. And you couldn't talk to people about it. And every now and then, I remember running into David Putnam and I could talk to him about it because he'd been there. But most people, and, you know, one's instinct is to complain about whatever it is. Well, the idea that you're moaning about paradise is you just get embarrassed. So you fall silent because, oh, I had a dreadful time in Hollywood. It was, you know. But it's, it's deeper than that, Stephen, because you were somebody who went there, as others have, with a particular experience of producing uh, high-end drama cheap for the BBC uh, or they for Channel 4. They didn't want it cheap. You know, but they didn't want it cheap. They didn't Why? want Because they had... Well, if you really want to know, because Sony, for whom I made two films, if the budget was 39, they didn't have to ask Tokyo. They were owned by the Japanese, by Sony. If it was 40, they then had to go to Tokyo and say, please, maybe make this film. If it was 39, they could do whatever they liked. Mm -hmm. Does that answer your question? It does, because what I'm trying to get at is when does your independence, for which you were famous, and was the reason they called you in the first place, when does that become compromised? And it's beyond 39 million is your answer. I don't think, I, there's a sense in which I don't think it was ever compromised. I, nobody was ever beastly to me. I do remember that the film, the Dustin film was called A Hero and a Half, which is a brilliant title and absolutely perfect for that film. And there was a film being made of, about a dog, just a dog and a half. There was something like that. So we lost the title. We couldn't use that title. And gradually I realised, also, the film I was making was based on Brecht, basically. And I remember seeing, oh my God, in the studio, find that out, they'll have a fit. I think <laughs> Dustin knew it. There were about two or three of us who knew that it was a, what we were saying was basically what Brecht said. So we kept quiet about it. But there is a disorientation. It's yes. there in the piece that you wrote that's collected here um, in the collection. The uh, VLRB piece is called That's Hollywood, and it's about being a guy who was had just done the grifters, was looking for a job, and suddenly you're in this rather hilarious yes. and well-described position of being messed about by actors who might or might not yes. um, be and aware I... of what would be in their own interests. Mm. And they want rewrites on that basis. You describe it quite closely. So it has to be disorientating. I don't think you even... I was going to tell you something, but it's not gone out of my head. I can't remember. It'll come back to me in a minute. Oh, I know. Yeah. When I made The Grifters, I remember having a clear sense. First of all, I was going to make it... John Cusack was always there, and he was... But I was going to make it with Melanie Griffith and Gina Davis. Then one day, they weren't in it. They disappeared. So was Melanie writing how she'd just been in Working Girl? Yeah, sort of, yes. Yeah. I also think that she was married to the blonde one from Miami Vice. 
Don Johnson. John Johnson. I think he just said, no, you can't do this. Huh. Then I remember sitting in, I remember thinking, they want me to make this film and they are deciding who I can have in it. That's right. I'd seen Moon, Moonstruck. For sure. And I wanted Cher. Or I saw, I thought, oh, Cher, we could do this. Then I saw, then Moonstruck went through the roof and you think, oh, well, that's not going to happen. And I remember thinking, this town is deciding who I can have. It's really out of my hands. And in the end, they'll say, you can have this person that person. And that's the end of it. And it, it isn't really my decision. I had a very, very clear sense of that. And then I remember sitting in the chateau and I was sitting there with Scorsese and Sissy Spacek came to see us. And, um, you know, she's a working class girl from Texas, I think. Well, for all I know, she's a millionaire. Anyway, whatever it was. And you thought, well, OK, you'd make this kind of film. And Marty agreed. Then half an hour later, Angelica walked in and it was a completely different film. I mean, I'm glad I made the one with Angelica, but the one with Sissy Spacek would have been probably just as good, but completely different because it was about a, a mother who could pass a girlfriend and she absolutely fitted that, whereas Angelica didn't. But why your piece here offers quite an insight into Hollywood, particularly whatever it says about your career, it's an insight because you're there, rather comically, quite sure about who you want. But the, the system... As well, it no, was, I said, notion. oh, it should be Al Pacino. Yeah. Al Pacino eventually played the part. Yeah. But Al Pacino wanted to play the lead. Here's a name character. I want to play the name character. But he ended up playing the character. So you had to, you had to wait while he worked out. <laughs> the world had to wait while he worked out that he should play this character and not that character. And did that feel very different at that early stage from what you were used to? You came from a system yes, here where you cast who you wanted and that was it. Yeah, yeah. completely different. And, and you had to learn, well, you realised there was a game going on that you couldn't begin to compete in. Had your friends, I mean, you were the younger man, but had your friends, Carl Rice, for example, warned you what it was like? No, no. no. He never did? No. Well, then it's complicated because I made Liaison. And I said, I want, you know, or we ended up with these people who were wonderful. So I'd got away with it. You know, and they, I don't know, I'd, I'd, I'd got it right. And then I thought, oh, all films are like that. And that was a big, mis <laughs> big mistake. One of the things that's often said about your work is that there's this interesting tension between your passion for the small screen and the smaller budget and then your occasional ability to really go to town and, as it were, almost, you know, eat up the whole history of film. I mean, when you made High Low Country, there you are. We spoke about Red River before. There you are doing a cattle drive in High Low Country. The only Country. man in the world who's ever done a cattle drive, I think. Since Howard Hawks. Since Howard. Well, no, I'm sure lots of American Westerns had them, but I used to look at Red River and I could work out that if you had cattle going two different, et cetera, et cetera. So there has to have been some sense of technical fascination with how do you do that? How do you do a film on that scale? How no, do you solve the problem? I don't think it's a technical problem. You just, I mean, it's money. If you have a lot of money, you can do things on that scale. But Hitchcock, uh, Hawks had John Wade and Montgomery Clift, so. Did you love doing that? I mean, do you love marshalling forces on that scale? Well, that's what you have to do. Well, that's what I'm asking you in relation to Hollywood. Does Hollywood allow that? is another way of putting it. Well, if you were Spielberg, that's what he does, and he can do it brilliantly. You know, I'm too old now, and Hitchcock could do it very, very well. 
Well, Hitch- well Hitchcock was cleverer. In what sense? He was a very, very clever man. Well, yeah, of course, in terms of the films, but I thought you meant in terms of handling the machinery. Well, he could handle the machinery. But if I was looking at my film, a new film, and I thought, oh, I was about to go for the head of Pathé and say, oh, you've completely corrupted me. I've made, an Ameri- I've made you an American film. All you've done is teach me how to make American films. What did you mean by that? It's sort of emotionally so confident. Yeah. And it manoeuvres its way through it with such confidence, such assurance. I mean, there are still mistakes in it that we have to correct, but um, I thought, oh, my God, I really have learned how to make an American film. Whereas when I made Hero, I don't think I did know how to make it. One of the clichés now, and it, of course it, it comes up and I think should come up um, in this book, but in many conversations about Hollywood is, of course, William Goldman's famous statement, nobody knows anything. But it seems to me... It's I, actually, I never thought that was true. It, 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 I was just about to say, mm. um, I've deployed it plenty of times myself, Everybody has. But actually, it's not true, is it? There are things they almost certainly know better than anybody Well, I else. always thought there was some... I was always trying to find the secret. I remember asking James Brooks and, indeed, Sandy McKendrick. It was as though there was a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow and you could, if you could find that. I'm not sure that... I don't think that's right. But I, nor do I... I mean, he was a very clever man. Goldman, but, but but just to give um, you know give him his due, wasn't he saying that they don't know what success is until it's well, already no, happened? Well, you haven't a clue. Yeah. I mean, when I I don't rem- I remember the head of Venice where we showed the Queen ringing. He said, "Look, this film is really good." Which film? The Queen. I didn't know. I hadn't a clue, and I it never crossed my mind it would make the sort of money it made. So that always the the making of the money. Is always a surprise. I, I remember the Laundrette. I remember thinking, oh, we'll make a good film with this. But the idea that it would have the sort of success it's had you know, was inconceivable. Can you look through the other end of the telescope then in that sense and, and, and express if there's been times when you're surprised or gobsmacked that something you thought was absolutely had the, had the gold at the centre of it that the public would love didn't? Does that happen? I don't think I ever thought that. I mean, I can see there are films that haven't had that sort of level and then I've made films which seem to me decent but have never had that sort of success I mean Houston used to talk about these sort of neglected children yes mm. I mean every filmmaker does and some some of them have been quite vocal about it I mean, mm. Austin Wells mm. is one of them who couldn't believe that people weren't in love even with the you know butchered version of the Magnificent Andersons yes, yes. Yeah. I mean, in a sense, you'd have to, as an artist, have that view of it. You'd spend no, because I remember all also, love on it. No, I remember also, what you can't do is stop a film. You know, it's like a moving train. You can, I remember stopping Mary Riley once, and I couldn't stop it a second time, but I knew absolutely what we shouldn't be doing. I was on. Mike Nichols stopped a film. He went to the studio after a week and said, look, this is, if you want my advice, you'll just stop now. You know, you know when something smells right. We've touched on but it. Of so course, you might have been wrong. Of course. Mightn't we all? Mm. We've touched on it several times already, but this question of scale and values, but one of the things that, of course, might be said now, like never before, is why would anybody interested in Hollywood or working there or using its resources or tapping into its scale... Why would they work in film rather than television? 
you famously have done and do still both. Can you just talk a bit about what the relative values are? I think it's the... I, I mean, I don't... People are always asking me that, and I never quite understand it. You know, Thorpe, which was a huge success on television. This is a very English scandal. Yeah, it would have been a catastrophe in the cinema. You'd have had to explain everything. It never crossed my... I mean, or I just knew, oh, right, we're doing this in the right place. So there's a... There's a you just feel at home in one if you've got the if you've made the right decision well i understand that it's one of the things that comes up a lot for novelists people and if you write non-fiction too people say to you why did you choose yeah. to write a story like about julian assange as a non-fiction story mm -hmm. rather than as a novel jonathan franzen wrote a novel influenced by that material why not do that and there is something in what you say that it's about where you feel at home, but also the material has a pace and a quality to it yes. and certain values that just automatically cleave one way or the yeah. other, no? I don't think people sit around. No, you don't rub your head about it. You simply know. Mm. I want to go back to a question involving Red River, actually. It's a question about style. It's whether Hollywood offered to you personally, this is just a highly personal question, there's no right or wrong about this, it's just whether it offered a, not a guide to style, but a kind of wonderful sort of casebook of styles to you through the years and still today. Thinking about Hawks and Wilder and John Huston. And well, they others. did. They were very clever, very, very good filmmakers. And I used to, when I was starting, I used to watch their film or see a film and think, oh, I'll do a shot from that tomorrow. I can remember doing a shot. <laughs> and there's a... There's a shot in Liaison, no one would ever know what it is, where, which is based on a Billy Wilder shot. I can't remember what you're asking me now. Just whether these great stylists in Hollywood had an influence on you and still I today. Don't know the stylists do. You directly. just think, oh, how interesting. He, the Wilder thing was where it went from being subjective to being objective by simply moving the camera back. He changed the whole perspective. Mm. And I did that in Liaison. I mean, there are things, I mean, you've, you've taught in film school, there are moments, let's stick with... Wilder for a moment. When we first meet Marilyn Monroe in Some Like It Hot, she's coming down the platform of the train station with the train with the two, uh, with Jack Lemmon. He, he went back and did extra shots. Yeah, because he wanted, he knew that this had to be a huge entrance, but also that there was something... Uh, no, 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 you're not listening to what I'm saying. He shot it, showed it to an audience and thought, hello, I need more. So he went back and did shots of a bottom or whatever it was. No, what he needed was the steam pumping yes, out of the train, her jumping he out He knew the that he'd got something good. Yeah. And he went back and reshot. So he knew that uh, he had to exploit it more. Have you ever done that? Going back? I don't, well, I've reshot, but I don't think I've ever been in that position. I mean, I've never had to rebuild a station or whatever it was he did. No, no, no. No, that would have been a big, big uh, extra shoot. I can't remember. It's funny that we're talking about Hollywood and also talking about these major stylists in the same breath because in a way they spent a lot of their lives resisting yeah. some of these same pressures that we've touched on already. But nevertheless, they did manage to Sometimes. make that system work for them by and large. Mm. A director like Hard Hawks could mm. make Red River one year and um, gentlemen prefer blondes. He was a sort of businessman, Hawks. Yeah, I think he said that himself. Yes, yes. Do you think in this connection you would have done well or been happy, let's put it that way, in the studio system in the it early It was days? always the fantasy. I remember talking to Alan Parker about it and said, oh, we'd have been great as 
what are we doing? What do you want me to do today, boss? Pirate film. Oh, okay. <laughs> and I remember Pauline Kale saying, you do talk bollocks. I've no idea. Sandy Donnan talks about the loss of innocence in the late 50s. So we we lost our innocence. But Hollywood, despite all the other things that may be said about it, um, and some of them disparaging, some of them constantly um, cynical in a way, it was also a place where great things got done yes. and still do to some Absolutely. extent. Do they, I don't know, are they still... Because I don't see... Marvel films, so I, I mean, I don't know what those films are like. Well, you wouldn't hold that up as a sort of continuance of the great tradition, I don't think. No. But you might still say that there are artists working in Hollywood in a system which is actually incredibly hostile to some of the processes that they might find natural. I suppose so. They might say that. Mm. Now, this is an anthology of writing, and you have always, so far as I know, um, and I've known you a long time, You've always been spoken of as a director who cares primarily about writing. You're a writer's director, yes. as the cliche goes, but also um, you've continually uh, understood your projects in terms of how they were conceived initially by writers. Hollywood has been quite hard on writers. I never understand where that comes from. Well, that's my question to you. I have no idea. I, to me, it's absolutely clear that the writing, first of all, it's before you turn up. So it's ahead of you in the queue. And I don't see how you can make a good film with bad writing. Well, even not just a question of bad writing, but the good writers are so far down the scale. There's a sense in Hollywood, isn't there, that executive authority lies... And perhaps this is right. I don't know, that's, I don't know that that's right. Executive authority lies with writers? No, it doesn't lie with writers, but good writers were... The way I, where I was, good writer. I mean, a man like I knew a man called Alvin Sargent very well, who had two Oscars. I mean, he was people revered him. Oh yes, I mean the role was the IEL Diamonds, the yes. Ben Hechts, mm. incredible writers in Hollywood. Yeah. That's not my point. My point is that um, given your interest in writing and the primacy of it, that it's actually thought of. You know, it comes up in the book actually in this wonderful anthology. It comes up at one point where. Uh, somebody asked Diana Ross, um, who's oh, this going is the, to I know, this is the David Hare story. <laughs> yes. Oh, we'll get someone yeah. else to do the paperwork. But no, <laughs> I, am, I know the reference. He's always on about that. That's and slightly I hilarious, isn't the it? The what? That's hilarious. Yes. He heard her on the radio. Somebody yeah. else do the paperwork. Well, it's after this... Oh, no, no, it's, it's ours. It's coming from us. Well, I never had any time for that. I mean, in any sense, it causes me to ask you, I mean, during the last few decades, have you found yourself ever in the position of having to fight for the writer, a David Webb Peoples or a Nick Hornby or a Roddy no, Doyle and that? No, so no. Or did, was everybody always no, they knew, on the same page they always, they knew what good writing was. I mean, they were idiots. I remember somebody saying to me, do we need all these scenes in the record shop in High Fidelity? And I said, are you out of your fucking mind? They're always idiots. You can't, there's nothing you can do about that. But it would be wrong nonetheless, wouldn't it, to characterise Hollywood as just this place that was, as it were, the locus maximus for well, idiots. Well, you don't know what, what I don't know, what you don't know and I don't know and what the percentage of good films are within a year. There are the four or five good films and the rest are just shite that programme fillers. I don't know. Did you grow up with a sense of reading uh, the 
the film critics. Did you read Pauline Kael? Did you look at James Ag? Did you read all that? No, I read um, Dillis Park. Dillis, oh yeah. Yeah, and did writing about film in that sense. Well, then I went to Cambridge, and Cambridge was full of people writing about film. Yeah, did it interest you? Well, in a sort of adolescent way. I mean, they were writing about Antonioni and Bergman. Hmm. And I remember... Because it's I interesting made, people, Lindsay Anderson and Carl Reyes, who were great friends and mentors of yours, you might say, gave you your first jobs. They were film writers initially. Well, Lindsay was really a critic. He began as a critic. And I'm not sure that isn't his greatest talent. And, of course, they founded their own magazine. Is there a relationship between critical writing and film still for you as you understand the business? I don't mean do you like the critics who write today? That's not my question. My question is, do you, as it were, look to elucidation and critical writing still as an accompaniment to what you do? Well, you sort of, you're always always looking for someone who will explain you to yourself. (laughs) Oh, I see, that's what I do. I read something the other day by, who was the man who lived in Chicago? Roger Ebert who said something about hero, and I thought, oh, that's a rather intelligent thing to say. Perhaps he was right. Given your understanding of the London Review and your experience <laughs> of it all these years, I mean, does it surprise you uh, at all that the LRB has indeed carried such material, so much of it, and such good material about Hollywood? No, because it's the most interesting place in the world. I mean, you know, all the sucks, they live there. <laughs> Christopher Isherwood, you know, it's it's always attracted people of high intelligence. Isn't it? I don't know anywhere in the world as interesting as Hollywood and as funny. Stephen, thanks very much. LRB Collections 10, Why Goldwyn Award Jodhpurs, writing about Hollywood from the London Review of Books, has contributions from Stephen Frears and Andrew Hagen, and Gabriella Annan, Betsy Blair, Angela Carter, Jenny Diskey, David Hare, Michael Rogan, David Thompson, B. Wilson, and Michael Wood. To order a copy, go to lrb.me forward slash Hollywood. That's lrb.me forward slash Hollywood.